recording. So after the, the, the demise of the on-post Ross, or the Ross, um, as some people would know it, um, I've decided to talk to a few people who've had uh, various experiences over the years in various capacity. First person up in this kind of two-part interview is Dan Lloyd. Um, many of you know Dan as a World Tour professional, but Dan did win. Uh, well, well, it was part of a team that did win the the Ross back in 2008 with Stephen Gallagher, and they even had a um, Mark Cassidy in yellow that year as well. Um, Dan, how did you find the the Ross, or what was your feelings about it at the time? Um, I well, I had a great time. We we won the race as you mentioned with with Stephen Gallagher, so it doesn't get much better than that. Um, and the weather was fantastic as well. You got all these horror stories about what it's like on the Ross with the rain every day, etc. But we had, I think, two hours of rain over the whole eight days on one single day. So um, it, it was great. And I've got fond memories of it. Yeah, a wet Ross is kind of like a, a wet Roubaix. It's a thing of legend, really, because the rain comes at you from so, comes sideways in places, and it just it gets into you, and it just does not stop. Um, how did you how did you find the racing in in it uh, as opposed to continental racing at that time? I, I know you went on to World Tour afterwards, but I suppose even comparing it against what what you'd done previously, was it different? Was it harder? Was it just go from the gun or how did you find it it was sorry the noise in the background there was my dog uh moaning um it's it's different much different to continental racing it's it's a little bit like doing eight premier calendar races in the uk back to back in that i would say that the speeds when they're at their highest are not as high as they are in continental racing but it's just full on the whole day and you can never predict when the winning break is going to go you can never predict when a, a you know threat on gc is going to get up the road and that makes it really unique and i think that's partly down to just the start of racing in ireland and in the uk to a degree back in those days as well but it's also down to the fact that there's five man teams and such a big um difference in the level within the same bunch with the county riders and people that are just trying to get through the eight days to the people that are trying to win it it was completely unique and very uncontrollable and that makes it really hard because you you do start really hard from the gun and it doesn't stop until you cross the finish line a few hours later so um very hard racing i would say uh the year you did it did casca casca tossed that year did he or he didn't finish it, and I think, what did, did um, or did he finish it? Um, I don't remember to be honest. I think he did get through. I, I'm not entirely sure. My memory is pretty shocking on a lot of things, <laughs> and that includes the Ross. But um, I remember being in a bar at the very end of it uh, with him and his dad Phil, having a couple of pints of Guinness. Um, but he, yeah, he was in the yellow jersey and he was really strong, but then he, he had a bad crash and I think he might have, if not broken his collarbone, he had quite a bad shoulder injury. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'll have to look it up actually. I don't even remember if he finished or not. If he didn't, then we were down to four riders. Yeah. I was, and I was going to say, you, you had, um, Paddy Paddy O'Brien, who, who is a, a legend and a gentleman of Irish cycling was, was riding with you and Benny the Schroeder as well. So you had a, you had a good team and a good strong team at that. Um, and I suppose there would have been a lot of pressure on you as, as on post, the on post team as it was then to ride well and defend the jersey and to kind of cover stuff off as well. So not only was the racing hard, but there's a lot of expectations on your shoulders as well. 
There was, yeah. I mean, it's, with the the way things are set up on the Ross, where you only have five man teams, it's almost impossible to defend in the standard way of riding on the front and trying to ensure that dangerous riders don't go up the road. You 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 have to be offensive to be defensive in, and send up riders. You know, even in the yellow jersey, they're going to have to cover their own moves, and if somebody's dangerous starts going, they've got to go with them. Um, which again is, is was something that I really enjoyed it, about the Ross. Um, so we defended it as best we could with Mark, then he got injured. And Stephen, I don't think, went into the yellow jersey until the penultimate day. Um, so we didn't have a lot of defending to do from that point of view. Yeah, I'm just looking it up here. Uh, Cass came down on stage four. So that was kind of midpoint of the race. And yeah, there's a, a lovely photograph of him here getting into the getting into an ambulance on, in the yellow jersey. I'd say he'd want to forget that. But um yeah, it's if it is hard because I I've even seen it when years past where on post had to sacrifice guys. I remember when uh, Duel was riding for on post and he was in the break one day just covering stuff, but the next day he was ten fifteen minutes down. Like so, it's it is really sacrifice everyone up the front to try and even if you can put one man in the yellow for a couple of days, you can ride from there and see how it goes. Um, but how 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 would you? Rated overall, I know you said the the speeds weren't as high, but is it just like eight one day races back to back, or is it did did it actually feel like a stage race to you guys? Oh, no, it certainly feels like a stage race. You become immensely fatigued because I think the overall stress of each day is probably higher than most races that you get in Europe. Because you know, although the you know I said the top speeds are not as high, it, that's not to do a disservice to how hard the Ross is because I think it's as hard if not harder than a lot of other eight-day races or even week-long races out there because as i said it's just full-on from from start to finish it's you know sometimes it, it can be a slog um because you end up in smaller groups you just spend more time on the front in the wind you know if you look at the continental style of racing a lot of the winners in in those races haven't hit put their nose into the wind until a few hundred meters to go or a couple of k's to go or whatever but if you want to win a stage of the Ross or go on to win the overall you've got to do a lot of pulling on the front on your own and you can't rely on teammates too much etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's it's an incredibly tough race and you know to think that these that so many people that have got full-time jobs managed to to get through it but i don't think i pretty had as much respect for them as the at the time when i was a full-time rider myself as i do now and to sort of think of the sacrifices that i would have to try and make now to to be in a at a point of fitness that i'd be able to get through an eight-day race like that just, yeah, just, just to point out um, at this point that you did nick the, the the yellow jersey on stage seven, just going into stage eight. Do you know who you nicked it from? I do. I didn't know for many years, and it was only probably a couple of years ago that yeah, Simon Richardson was in the yellow jersey, and he pointed out to me that he was obviously quite upset at the time that uh, we we'd taken it off him with two days to go. Yeah. I think he won a stage a couple of days previous, and then uh, and then Steve and he finished together the previous day, and then on on that day it was just another one of those typical Ross days where there were attacks flying left, right, and centre, and um, we ended up with a big group going up the road, and I got into another counter attack just behind that. And then I was sort of looking over my shoulder and I saw a group with Stephen coming across who was obviously really high placed in the GC without the yellow jersey and without Dave McCann. And so as soon as he got across to us, I just did 
as much as I could on the front for 30 or 40 Ks to bridge him up to the next group, which I think Paulie was in, um, at which point I was done. But yeah, it was one of those days where I was looking at the results before um, I started this conversation with you. And I think Dave McCann finished sort of five and a half minutes down and Cy was about seven minutes down. Yeah. Again, it's just one of those things it, it, from day to day, it can change so drastically. You can be in the lead by three minutes and finish the next day six minutes back. Um, as a race, you know, we've mentioned some great riders there. You know, Cy, uh, I see Dean Downing took stages, Dave McCann, Kieran Power was there, or Pawdy as well. Um, how do you how did you rank it as part of your development as a rider at that point? Um, well, for me, I was sort of ended up helping others the whole way through with um, Cassidy doing so well at the start and being in the yellow jersey and then... Stephen going into it towards the end, uh, you know, I think immediately after the first couple of stages, it was I was at a point where it wasn't one for me. I mean, that was the great thing that we had overall at the team that year. In a continental squad, it's quite hard to get a unified team, yeah, because everyone that's in it wants to progress onto something bigger and better, and so you get lots of people that quite understandably look after their own interests. But what we had that year was. Um, was a team where we often had somebody going to the leader's jersey in a stage race and everybody else was fully prepared to put 100% in to sacrifice themselves for, the, for that cause. Uh, so we ended up winning three stage races that year, which was, I think, pretty unique for a continental-level squad. Um, so, uh, yeah, from my point of view, in the first couple of days, I knew that it was somebody else I was going to be working for, but I was quite happy to do it. Uh, did that frame you for work or life after on post when you mo- when you moved up through the ranks? Did you think, yeah, my my best bet as a to get a, a contract as I move up is, is as a domestique, or did you still have aspirations that you could still p- pull off and score results? Well, I mean, you've always got aspirations to pull off a big result, but because of the fact that by the time I got to a big team, I was twenty eight. You know, by that point. <laughs> you realise that you're not going to win the Tour de France. Pretty much, and, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, by, by the time I got to that point, I realised that I was only going to be a sort of helper at the very most, and I was... I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be winning the Tour of Flanders or winning the Tour de France by that point, and so when I got that chance at a top team, it was just like, well, I'm going to help other people and hopefully get a contract for a few more years through that. Um, of the other guys that you rode that that Ross with, was there anyone that just stood out with you, or stood out as a as a rider that was going to go places at the time that you thought, well, he's definitely going to make the pro ranks? Um, nobody that I can think of immediately, but I mean, obviously, in years after that, there was the likes of Tony Martin and people like that that won it. I mean, if you, if you had a, any young rider that does well at the Ampost Ras, then then they're going to go on to big things because if you're strong enough at a young age to get through that race high up on the overall GC or to to win stages, then yeah, it yeah. It, mar- it marks you out that you have the cap- capacity to do that sort of yeah. that workload, which is kind of required at the world tour level. Yeah, um, you've got to have a big engine, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, with the with the demise of it. Is it kind of reflective of what's happening with the UK scene as well, or how's the UK scene looking? I know there's a few races that have been knocked on the head over there this year. Or how's that going? Um, yeah, I don't think the UK scene's looking great, to be honest. In terms of 
the number of races that they have access to and you know even the ter- in terms of JLT Condor or, or whatever they were known in their last couple of years falling by the wayside as well you know a team that's been around for so long um and all of the teams like Madison Genesis I was talking to Roger Hammond the other day and you know, they have to sort of look around abroad to start their racing program because there's just not enough for them to do in the UK and it's a really strange situation because you know the UK and I I don't know if I could say Ireland as well, given Kelly and Roach, et cetera, in those days. But there's there's a lot of World Tour pros from Ireland, and there's a whole lot of World Tour pros from the UK. And we're winning the biggest race in the world. But actually, the, the domestic scene, whilst there's a decent number of good-level teams and a decent number of high-level riders, the actual grassroots... Well, I wouldn't say grassroots. I'd say the sort of top level of cycling within the UK is not looking great. I mean, we've got the Tour of Britain... But behind that, you know, the premier calendars and the stage races that people have got access to are quite minimal, really. Yep. And um, and there's no one to blame for that. It's just very difficult to to put a race on and to get the road closures and get the permissions and then get the sponsorship to put it on because it becomes extremely expensive with all the insurance and stuff. So I don't know what the I, I don't know what the solution is. Yeah, I, it's not looking great. No, it's not. And I, I kind of like I, I spoke about the Ross before, and I think. It falls between two stools. It's too big for a small company to sponsor, and it's too small for a big company to sponsor. So it kind of, it's that kind of thing where you need a CEO of a company that loves cycling to throw it a few quid or whatever else. And then I suppose like the same probably is reflected over in, in the UK that some races, while they're they're decent, they mightn't get huge, you know, TV coverage or whatever else. So you're you're struggling trying to, to know how to pitch it and how to bring in money for it. Yeah, and I, to be honest, I think that's the same at the very top level of the sport. You know, even if you look at a load of races in in France or or Italy, they're brilliant races, and some of them have got quite a long history as well. But there aren't that many people interested in watching them on TV, and I I I, I do see the sort of international professional scene reducing in number of races because I just. It is going to be increasingly costly to put a race on and sponsors are going to say, well, I need it to be on television, otherwise I'm not going to get my money back on it. And if it's not on television or on the internet or whatever it might be, then they're not going to get enough sponsorship money for the race to keep going. Yeah, And I don't necessarily think we need as many international races as we've got at the moment. But at the same time, you still need those developmental races for the under 23 riders to take part in in order to bridge you know to, to go up to the next level so it's a yeah it's a i don't know as i said i don't know what the solution is we're still producing an enormous number of talented youngsters um but a lot of them are coming through cyclocross or through track racing and finding their feet in the in the international races yeah and um we had actually i'm part of a club at the moment and i'm on the committee there and we're actually discussing running a youth league and you know it's uh, the youth league was described as a funnel you know you try to get 60 50 60 riders into it and maybe get five riders out of it but the question was raised what's it for um and you know if as a an amateur club if a rider goes on and sam has come on from our club um if a rider goes on up through the age groups there's nothing back for the club for bringing them on from under 12 under 14 under 16 junior and under 23 so it it seems as if the model itself is broken and yeah. 
from you know look uh, the two of us are definitely not going to solve it um but yeah it does seem as if, as if it needs change and i do agree with you as well that you know look we've had this the first couple of weeks of the season have been on we've had andalusia we've had uh san juan colombia uh uae it's it, it seems really packed with GC races now, but then as you get towards the tour and stuff like that, things just tin out and the calendar kind of could do with a bit more structure and a bit more balance yeah. and, and maybe a bit more circular so that teams can, you can see the, the top pros at every race rather than seeing maybe one or two at this race and one or two at that race. And it could do with a little balance. And I do agree with you there. Um, but yeah, how it's going to fare out and how that's going to feed down to, top level amateur racing is, is something that's going to have to change over the next few years. Um, I suppose just coming back to the Ross, um, now that you're back training and you're back doing a, a suffer fest plan, would you, if the Ross was back in the morning, would you go try and ride it as an amateur just for the, the crack, <laughs> just for the crack no. in the eight, the eight days? No, I, I, um, I, ha- I had my time and I was, uh, and although I didn't get any huge results, I kind of feel satisfied that I got the most out of, what I had to give, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I've not really ever sort of, I always say to people, I, I wasn't ready to finish when I did. I just didn't get my, my contract renewed, but I haven't missed it either. Uh, uh, you know, I would have quite happily carried on riding and racing full time as a pro probably until now, if I'd have been good enough. But, um, and as I said, I wasn't ready to give up, but having finished it, I also haven't missed it all that much. And that's partly why I haven't raced, sorry, ridden my bike particularly much over the last three or four years is because I've realized since I stopped that the only reason I did it is because I wanted to be better at it and I wanted to train specifically. I want to see the numbers go up and ultimately want to see the results gradually get better or do better performances for other people or whatever that might be. And I, I didn't do it to get fresh air or for the social aspect or for the exploration aspect or anything else. I was literally out there doing intervals thinking I just want to get better at this. And when I finished, I just thought, well, I you're finished. That's yeah. I just, I, I didn't have any, I've had no desire since then to go out and just go for a ride. And that's for, to some people would seem incredibly alien, you know, in particular, someone like Cy Richardson, I obviously work alongside who we were talking about earlier. He, he loves riding and he gets in a bad mood if he doesn't ride. And if he gets in a bad mood, his wife kicks him out of the house and says, go out for a ride because you're, you know, you, you're not yourself. It's not quite the same for me. I, I think you get, you get that in ex-pros and I've been quite interested to look at different ex-pros and some just completely stop. Some, you know, like Sean Yates being an extreme example, can't stop, even though it's probably not good for him to ride a bike anymore. He's addicted yeah. to it and he has to go out and, and, punish himself or go as fast as he can and you get all all sorts of different ex-pros in terms of how much cycling they do so I've quite enjoyed doing the Sufferfest 10 weeks get fit because it's what I enjoyed about it it's it's going in with a with a plan and there's a load of numbers for you to hit and I can hit those numbers and tick it off go on to the next day and see an improvement in performance but um, I've got no aspirations to get back into a race anytime soon just on that point, is it because you your career came as a bit more of a mature rider and you were kind of a little bit wiser? I I, I don't I don't mean you were older or anything like that. I just mean it because you'd probably seen a bit more and because you'd you'd fought harder for it and you'd had a few fall stones that when it did come, you realised what it was and you took it with both hands, took it for what it was and 
took advantage of it as best you could. But when it kind of ended, it was kind of okay. Well, that's that's okay. That's done with, and I'm okay with that. Um, and that you're someone else may have someone younger than you may have kind of struggled with that and may have tried to put themselves into a crappier team or gone to a, an Italian amateur team or something like that to try and keep riding and come back up. Yeah, I think uh, uh, there is that. I mean, by the time I finished, I was th- uh, 31, I think. Um, and, you know, somebody like James Shaw, who didn't get his contract renewed with Lotto Sudal at the end of last year. And to be honest, I don't even know what he's doing right now. But the last time I heard he was still struggling to get anything. I mean, he's 21 or 22 years old and he's got his whole career ahead of him. And I, I, I saw him at the Dave Rayner Fund dinner last year and just said, whatever happens, just make sure you do your utmost if you go into a small team. Making a backward step is a really hard thing. Yeah. And, 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 that, and you're right. I, I, when, I, when I finished with Garmin and went back to Sigma Sport, I didn't have the – I just didn't have the motivation and, and desire to work hard enough to try and get myself back up to where I was. Whereas somebody like Russ Downing, for example, has won big races with Team Sky and is still racing to this day. Just he just loves racing, and he can accept that he's over his peak and has had his plateau and started to go down the other side, but still wants to still wants to go out and train, still wants to race to the best of his ability. I just I wasn't like that. My my whole career kind of gradually went upwards, and when it fell off a cliff. At the end of Garmin, I, I I sort of gave up mentally, I think. Yeah. And I was just fortunate that things came along after that for me to sort of slip into within the sport, really. Um, as a guy who's managed to pivot his career, what would your advice be for young riders these days? Um, I know, like you, you mentioned James Shaw there, and he got a, a very, very quick start, but a very, very sudden stop as well. And, uh, you know, look at other guys... Ivanapol coming in at a young age um, and skipping under 23s. What would be your couple of key takeaways from your career of how to manage it? I it, I don't have much advice. When whenever I if I sort of meet a professional rider my that, that's currently doing okay, my advice to them is you're actually doing really well for yourself financially, even though you'll compare yourself to the best riders on your team and think, well, I'm earning a fifth as much or less than them or less than that than them. You're actually doing really well. When you, when you go into the real world and you find out what you can earn, uh, if you're a sales rep for a bike importers or whatever it might be, you'll realize how well you're doing now. So my advice to them is always get your mortgage paid off, that way you've got big choices when you finish because you'll only need to earn a certain amount from day to day. But I think when you're, you know, even I slipped into that as a pro rider, you know, when you're next to Carlos Sastre and Tor Hushoff, you think, well, I'm you know, being paid decently, but I'm not doing that well compared to them. And it was only after I finished that I suddenly had a realisation that you know, I was doing all right, actually, financially by that point, and it was going to be hard to, to replicate that. In terms of younger riders, well, I obviously said to James Shaw that he you know, just did not give up. He's so young. He's got so many years to make it back to the top. But I think if I'd have looked back on my own career and been giving advice to myself, I'd probably have told me to stop way before I did and if I had stopped way before I did, I wouldn't have the opportunities that I ended up having after my career. You know, I think it was slightly 
I don't know, naive. I, I'm not sure what it was, but you know, to, to still be there at 28 years of age, not really having earned a decent wage at all, and still striving to become a professional rider, I could equally um, have have been 29 and not had anything, and had to start all over again. Um, which is still young, as, as, as you know, like when yeah. you look back at it now. But um, yeah, so I, yeah, my my advice to current pros is always to pay their mortgage off. <laughs> no, <laughs> so it's it. Like to worry about afterwards. It, it, it's very wise words because I suppose um, I'm by trade I'm an IT engineer I'm 42 now and you know I, I don't know if, you, if you've ever heard of it it's the a movement in America called FIRE so it's uh, financially independent retire early and basically what it's, what it's about is um, young people saving as much money as possible um, and either investing it in bonds stocks uh, property and to retire at an early age 40 yeah. 40 45 and be financially independent and no longer need to work and to be able to live mortgage free and mortgage free is the dream because you know it, it, it's it's a huge it's a fixed <laughs> it, it this is a real tangent but it's a it's a fixed lump of of cash that you have to have every month irregardless of hail rain sleet or snow or sick child yeah. uh, you know, and it, it's it can become a stress on someone, and if you don't have that stress, you can drive the fifteen, twenty-year-old car and service it regularly, and you can enjoy life. You can go out, and you can go buy the bottle of wine with dinner. You can go on the summer holiday, and you know you can do bits and pieces, and you don't have to have the that high-flying job. Of, you know, you can have an easy job that you do from nine to three, and you can go ride your bike a couple of hours in, of the day. Or you can spend those couple of hours with your kids, your family, or some way of enjoying life. And it, it, I know it seems very simple what you said about just paying off your mortgage, but it's it's very very wise advice. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, money. I know a few people with a reasonable amount of money, and they just say it's it's about choice. So you might equally pay your mortgage off, and end up still wanting to work as much as you did. But it's a different thing when it's your own choice, and you don't yeah. have to do it as it is when you have to do it in order to pay the bills each month. And I think a lot of people that make a lot of money end up still doing what they were doing. I guess in the cycling world, I always look at somebody like Mark Cavendish and think, well, he doesn't need to prove himself as a top sprinter anymore, and he doesn't need the money. He just does it because he absolutely has to win still. And there's a lot of people like that in the business world as well Yeah, that could easily retire tomorrow, but they've probably initially started making money because they wanted to make money and, and pay their mortgage off and be able to retire at a certain point. And once that's happened, they then realize actually what they liked about that was the process of doing it. And so they carry on. But yeah, that, that the, the choice that gives you is, um, it, is powerful because it, it almost allows you to enjoy your work more than, than you do when you have to do it. No, it's very, very true and very, very wise, very, very wise words. And on that note, we'll uh, thank Dan for his time, and we'll stop recording there and leave him off. Thanks, Dan. Cheers, Derek.